Hey, everybody, welcome to Investing in Cannabis. I'm Brandon David. Exceptional show for you this week. We have Ryan of LeafLink, who just nine days ago closed a $10 million round for his marketplace that connects retailers and brands. So that's retailers, aka dispensaries that need to buy from brands, and his platform is one that allows for the transaction. It's super fascinating stuff. We talk about his next biggest challenge, which is California and how he conquers that market. He's particularly compelling himself. He's Forbes 30 under 30 from 2016 and has a previous exit outside the cannabis industry. I learned a ton. You're going to learn a ton. Instant classic. Tune in, listen up, get acquainted. Ryan, thanks so much for being here. Welcome to the show. Uh, first of all, huge congratulations on raising $10 million only about nine days ago. Thanks. Super exciting. Sets us up for a really you know, powerful 2018 with a lot to do. Yeah, particularly good timing to have someone on a show about investing in cannabis as well. But let's get started at the beginning here. Uh, I mm-hmm. love to hear founders describe uh, their own business. So okay. how would you describe LeafLink? So LeafLink is the largest wholesale B2B marketplace. Uh, we connect now over 1,700 brands with more more than 1,700 retailers with more than 400 brands every day on the platform, uh, moving about 15 to $16 million a month through the marketplace. And then we have a back-end solution that really supports companies in order management processes. So we when we first began doing research in the space, realized that a lot of it was running on text messages, post-it notes, Google Sheets. Mm-hmm. We virtualized all that and created a system for people to actually have structure on to build their businesses too. Got it. So let's kind of break that down a little bit. Tell me about sort of the value proposition for retailers and then and then for brands. Sure. So like a little background will be helpful too on, on myself and my co-founder, Zach Silverman. We both have built enterprise B2B platforms before with you know particular interest in marketplace, peer-to-peer type community technology. And when we began doing research into the cannabis space, we found that you have these incredibly pioneering, aggressive, forward-thinking entrepreneurs that had a lot of remnants of, and this is a, a maturation that we all go through, but the same lack of process that existed when they had five people as now when they have 50. So for example, if you're a purchasing manager and you have to purchase from 40 to 50 different brands every week just to stock your shelves, uh, you're doing that either via text messages, like we said before, like Google Sheets, reading PDF menus and emails, sending more emails, spending about a day and a half a week to just gather that information, make the purchasing decisions and submit it to the sellers. And then when you're a seller, you're getting those that information and all those different methods as well and putting it into probably more text messages or whiteboards, post-it notes. And so we met with some great companies whose names you know and we'd say, you know, what was what was your, your eight-figure revenue companies selling products to these different markets? What was your most sold product yesterday? And the question was very subjective. It was like, oh, well, you know, the, the drinks do well. The, the fruity drinks really do well. <laughs> yeah. And we thought, wow, I mean, that, that seems like a very straightforward question and how, how powerful it'd be for us to build tools that could support these businesses in their own growth and scaling by giving them that, that process and that transparency to their data. So we saw this unique opportunity to not disrupt an industry, but define it from the very beginning on a tech platform that was built for them 
uh, to catapult us all forward to this V2 of the cannabis space, which we're all prepping for. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you mentioned a, a technology company versus being a cannabis business. Can you talk about a little bit about the difference there and, and sort of uh, how that appeals to investors as opposed to saying, oh, we're, we're specifically for the cannabis industry? I, I understand that you are, but you called yourself a tech company. So just curious about that distinction. Absolutely. Yeah. So my background, my co-founder's background, a lot of our team's success, I think, is that we've married people with great cannabis experience and people with incredible technology experience. And that's really where the secret sauce comes from. The difference to us and particularly to investors is everyone knows whether they're individuals or individuals running institutional funds that there's something really exceptional happening in the cannabis industry. And a lot of the time it's easier for them to convince their limited partners to play in the space or make investments and allocations in the space. If it's not a cannabis company or not a cannabis touching company. So mm -hmm. basically what that means is like an ancillary tech platform like us where we don't touch the money, we don't touch the product, we provide a technology software service to these to these companies uh, means that we can grow as the industry grows, but we don't have and we are not required to be licensed as a marijuana company, which puts us in the eyes of investors and, and likely is the case much lower on if there was ever a crackdown or some type of breaking up of the industry, we would not be the top of the list of things that would be of interest to whatever party's doing that. Sure. So I, still, I think frequently these funds, uh, they have what's called a vice clause, which basically yep. includes them from investing in totally. things like cannabis or porn or, or other things, tobacco even sometimes. Even, even liquor. Even, wow. even things, yeah, there, there's you know a lot of, particularly like sovereign wealth funds that back venture capital funds uh, from certain parts of the world that tend to be more conservative have vice clauses like that around things that we wouldn't even, you know, in West, in some Western culture, even consider a real vice. And, and so this is something. And then when you think about their line of thinking, if they're, they have a $500 million fund and they want to write a five or $10 million check, that's not worth it in their mind to jeopardize the other $490 million, let's say, uh, to, to participate in the space. And do you buy that answer 100%? I mean, uh, that's their policy, but is it a moral discussion at this point or there's still uh, more concern about regulations and uncertainty and taxes, 280E, that thing, that kind of stuff, or is it still kind of an anti-cannabis uh, sentiment? It's really interesting because when we, whenever we go out and raise capital, we're, we're really doing two things. We're raising capital for our company, but we're educating people about the industry and explaining to them that there's that there is something to keep an eye on here. It's the, one of the fastest growing, not the fastest growing industries, and they know that. But when you think, when you go down the chain of where their money comes from, and then some of the things that though that those parties are responsible, moral standards to uphold, or just you know. There's enough opportunity when you have the level of capital that some of these uh, parties and groups have that it's just not it's not a required outlet for them to, to find success. And so they want to be as buttoned up, in some cases even more buttoned up than required. That's something that fundamentally is obviously changing. The laws are clearly behind. Most Americans don't agree. Most Americans don't agree on really anything, but we there's, you know, majority now do agree that at least medical marijuana should be should be accessible to, to patients that need it. And and I think for the first time, 51% of Republican senators are backing recreational legislation for for that for that obvious movement. So when the law catches up, I think then the money will catch up. And it may actually be in the reverse order, but it's the momentum is very clear and positive that 
this will become less of a applicable question in conversations like this in the next year, 18 months. Which I would say it's about time because the conservative totally. platform is very much pro-business. Mm -hmm. So the idea that they are sort of snubbing their nose at this multi-billion dollar uh, industry sort of doesn't doesn't resonate. And that's why I wonder if it's a it's a moral or a religious question. But I, I really liked your answer to it. That was great. OK, so let's go Thanks. back um, to the to the business a little bit. Um, you mentioned one figure, I think, 16 million dollars. What 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 was that number again? So that's our gross merchandise value. That's the, the number of deals that are organic that are created through the platform every month between buyers and sellers. I see. Okay. And put that in perspective a little bit for listeners. I mean, uh, do you have an estimate for, I know this is going to be a big number, but uh, what the potential transaction value of something like that is? Sure. So a lot of marketplace companies, even just regular startups, right? They, they dream of capturing one to 2% of an established industry, like how incredible that would be with the numbers that are attached to those figures. On on our side, you know, where the goal is, and we will be hitting right around two hundred million dollars on an annualized basis in that in that GMV number. And when you think about the the industry as a whole, continuing our growth, we think that by the middle uh, to third quarter of next year, we'll be doing about eight and a half percent of the wholesale cannabis transactions in the United States, uh, legal, we should say, obviously. Yeah. And so that really is something that. It's not only amazing on on a business level, but also just on an industry standard level to have that kind of community acceptance and buy-in from a group of entrepreneurs and business owners that are really looking to catapult themselves forward is is really powerful and puts us in a, a very unique position to provide tools that are not only supporting what they do, but in some ways directing and 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 furthering their efforts in ways that they may not have been open to in the first place yeah remarkable amount of traction particularly um you know your company has not been around that long right we're talking about 2015 is it 2015 that was yeah we're, we're coming up on a two-year anniversary Awesome. So of that $16 million, um, you know, how does that break down? It, it, how, how do you get paid, I suppose, is the question. Yep. So we right now keep it really simple and charge a monthly flat fee for brands to be on the platform. It's free for retailers. And we are now exploring adding additional services that have really been just out of requests from our clients, things that they want for their businesses for their day to day that we'll be adding in. Um, and our whole focus has always been, you know, there are tech companies in the space. I think generally this exists, but in this space particularly that are quite predatory in how they charge and treat their clients. Our whole focus is to further the industry and to, like we said, empower entrepreneurs in the space. So we kept the price low. We want to keep it really simple. No, no, you know, unnecessary complexity to all that. We want to serve as much of the market as we possibly can as fast as we can. And that's why we kept the, the pricing simple as well. So flat rate for brands, are there tiers based on size or it's really like one size fits all? There are tiers. So depending on if you're just if you're selling one brand, then that that's one price on the lower end. And then we have companies that are selling not only their brand, but maybe eight or nine others. And so depending on the type of presence they want to have on the platform, if they want it to be broken out independently, kind of create their own identity for each brand, even though it's within one umbrella company, there are additional fees. Uh, but overall, it's flat. However many users they need. Uh, however many transactions they run, uh, that's that's the the current model on on revenue. Got it. And 
do you intend to keep it that way? It seems like there's such an opportunity for a percentage-based revenue model. There's definitely, and that is a question that people quite often ask, at least amongst investors, because they think, oh, marketplace, you should charge a transaction fee. And we've seen a handful of companies try to start out there. A number of them are not in business anymore. And, and we think that there are way more powerful things that we can provide to our clients, which to our bottom line will mean the same thing, but will really be in, to the benefit of as opposed to, because sometimes, you know, transaction fees and other types of fees might actually lessen client engagement. We are really focused on adding revenue lines that we know our clients need and they'll be happy to pay because it, it furthers their pursuit as well. Sure. Yeah. And there's almost like a disincentive for them to grow in transaction value with a percentage-based uh, revenue model. So I, a, I get that. A, that yeah, yeah, it's a classic marketplace challenge, right? Mm-hmm. If you if you uh, have a too high of a transaction fee, people will look to disintermediate, go around the platform. Sure. Um, but there's there's some really unique things that we're thinking through and working on and we'll be launching next year that uh, we know will be perceived more as a value than a, than a takeaway to the community on LeafLink. Yeah. So uh, you mentioned that there are some other competitors. It's, it's not a unique concept, although you have uh, got a large portion of the of the industry in a hurry. Mm-hmm. Um, why do you think LeafLink has been successful where others have failed or are failing, I suppose? Execution, 100%. I mean, we go, it's very interesting, the world of investing in cannabis and the, and the difference between that, the noise at conferences and events that people are trying to put capital into the space and then the actual space. So there are companies that have done a great job of making noise and having presence at conferences, doing interviews, getting their name out there, and then they don't even come up in some of our sales meetings. And so for us, it's we, we almost have these companies that are not even real in the real world, but they are real to people that are making investments, and then investments are made sometimes, and then it bothers us because nothing's done well with that money and we do think that all of the first these first tech companies which we're a member of that are in the space really important to show external investors something real but our competitive advantage and this has always been the case it's why we were able to raise seven figures before we even had a product and it was just zach and and me building an mvp because the thing we care about most is execution we always want to over deliver to our clients and we're building this trust now where people know when we say we're going to do something we're going to do that and we're going to push ourselves to potentially do more because we're in this for the long haul we really want to build something transformative and definitive for, for the industry yeah, well said. Um, you were diplomatic about it when you said that there were companies that aren't necessarily real. I would put it a little differently. I think there's a lot of bullshit in this industry, uh, yep. both both startups and investors. Do you think that's a product of sort of just the space being hot and trendy and cannabis is cool? Or why do you think we, we're seeing that so much? That's, that's, a, that's a huge component. Everyone is so excited about the space and there are a lot of people that are interested in wrong parts of the industry and they could talk a great game and they could loop in a bunch of people that are looking to deploy capital. And the and we see decks all the time now with trigger words like, oh, we're gonna do a we're gonna do an initial coin offering on the blockchain for all the and I'm like, oh my god, you know, <laughs> buzz, uh, who, buzz, 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 yeah. buzz, buzz, buzzword. Oh. And what if what has this company done? We see we see this all we see all the decks that are being passed around just because we're so tied in with the, our investors and we have a close relationship with them. But 
yeah, it, there's a lot of trickery happening. There's a lot of look at companies that are publicly traded that have just been blowing up because, mm-hmm. you know, the, the gravy train ends. You have to actually do things that create value for people that are risking their hard earned money on what you're building. And it shouldn't be, if anything, it would, we should be holding ourselves in this industry to a higher standard because the expectation is lower. And that's, yeah, I mean, if you're talking that, about yeah. a public company specifically, if you have a, a huge uh, capex and you, uh, d- I don't use the product and I don't know anybody that uses the product, mm-hmm. uh, how much value could there really be there? <laughs> you know, I and, mean, that, yeah, yeah. I mean, you see, and I've, I've, I've seen some interviews too that you've done where people are talking about. Uh, I've seen read a number of other articles. How great it is that people are, you know, getting high at work and they have dab rooms and all the and I, and I think to myself, how can you build a great tequila companies aren't taking shots every day on Monday mm-hmm. morning meetings. There's mm-hmm. a perfect place and time to use the product and, and and everyone in their life is able to do what they want to do. But at work we need to be super aggressive. There are people out to to get us every single day and and the only way to remain that sharp, aggressive execution is to be as as clear headed as we can, and, and that's we're, we're, we like draw a very hard line on that. We want to be as buttoned up and professional because that's what we see as the future for the space. It's what the what our clients deserve, and the companies that made a big stink and made a lot of noise around. Oh, you know, we could do all this and be successful. You know, a year or two later, I, not a lot of success coming out of those teams. Mm. How specific um, is that a part of the conversation with investors? You know, like, do you guys get high at work? What's the culture like? Are are they concerned about uh, cannabis companies in that way? Those questions are, they actually don't come up all that often. Um, it's something that when they do, we, we are I'm as, I'm as clear as I just was with you about how we feel about that and what the, the, the what we believe this industry deserves to catapult it to the next level. Uh, it comes up, but it comes up less and less, and a lot of it has to do too with who you're speaking with, right? If we're if we're pitching institutional investors that have put capital, significant capital, into awesome startups and in other industries whose names we know, the expectation is that everyone is on top of it, very on the ball at every moment of the day, working crazy hours, and living living the dream, living you know what we need to be doing to to reach the goals of the company and. It's really hard to do that if, if everyone isn't at that level. So the question doesn't come up all that often. I think if we met with certain investors that aren't really investors but are pretending to be investors in the cannabis industry, which happens a lot too, mm-hmm. they would ask that question. But more polished institutional investors don't really. It doesn't come up all that often because they know where we stand and it's very clear if they don't. Yeah, and you certainly have a track record at this point. Um, in February, you closed three million dollars, and then just a few short months later, the ten million dollar round just about nine uh, nine days ago. Uh, congratulations again, and take me Thanks. through that strategy process. I mean, why raise again so soon? Twenty eighteen is is the year that if we haven't already turned a corner where this becomes just so, so much a part of everyone's lives beyond the states that are known for being first movers in this space, right? There's, so we have offices in, in LA, in New York, in Denver, and it's been so much a part of the world of, of Colorado and Washington and, and Oregon and California for so many years. But now you're really having this general interest and acceptance of, and basically like 
obvious inevitability of this industry being mainstream if it isn't already. And so raising capital now was important because there are very unique opportunities that we have given the, the how nascent still the industry is and how quickly it will be maturing to become a, a fundamental part of what the supply chain is, how it's virtually managed. And we think an example for other industries in time, regardless of all the regulation and compliance and legislation that's changing all the time in every state, other industries will look at this industry because it grew up with technology from the very beginning. And we want to be that under that underlying backbone of the space. And so raising additional capital to really aggressively go after California, to go after a number of the East Coast states that are coming online now. And we need to be everywhere and we want to be able to finance that and get even more aggressive than we've been. We tell the team who worked so hard, 2017 was a great year. For us, we accomplished the th- many of the things and more that we were uh, you know, going for, but it's going to feel like a vacation this time next year because that's what 2018 means for us. And the, and the more capital we can have, the more brilliant people we can bring to both LeafLink and the industry is that's how we do that and capital you know, raising money was 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 obviously needed to to be able to do that well you're a pretty humble guy but i'll brag for you to raise 13 million dollars as a young company in a single year uh means you're crushing it <laughs> and Thanks. and i'm sure you don't uh want to share all the data that you shared with investors but i'm sure it must have been compelling because um that's a lot of money for a for a small company in a relatively short amount of time and um, and I, I appreciate the compliment but it so is a, like a story that our whole team is writing together and it's only you can only really sell sell something that everyone on our team worked as hard as they do to build. And so it was very much like a, a, a team effort and it's only possible with what we've built together at LeafLink so far. Yeah, nobody does anything alone. That's a totally. really important, uh, I think, takeaway for founders. A lot of founders that listen to this show and, and entrepreneurs, people that want to be in the industry. Um, you brought up California. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that most of your customer base today is outside of California, right? In Washington and, and in Colorado. That's um, right. You know, take me through, obviously, California is important, but if you can quantify some way that it's important uh, to LeafLink specifically, and then, you know, what are what's the strategy? What are the steps to, to take over California? So why, so I guess I'll start with why California is important. The, well, I the, just, you know, everybody kind of says generally like, oh, California is so big. It's, it's so, so important. Big. It's the next yeah. thing. But, you know, put that into some facts for me. I mean, you know, how, how much bigger do you think uh, Leafly can or LeafLink can be as a result uh, of California? You know, is this uh, a third of your business? Is it going to be half of your business? You know, you quantify that somewhere. Sure. So California right now, it resembles a tripling of LeafLink's business when we achieve the same levels of engagement and user acquisition that we've done in the other states where we've launched that are significantly smaller. What California means to us, and this is very much the way we built the platform too, is smaller states have been pioneers in building legislation that we know California is looking at very closely and, and modeling their regulations after. And so we built LeafLink to be respectful and in line with that, that atmosphere. California, but setting that up was really the primer for this is this is reaching scale now, right? At all of these things are coming to play across thirty plus million people, right? Basically, an entire coast will now will now be brought online, and it's also shaking out what has been the oldest 
gray market in the in the states and that means that all of the arguments typically on the counter side to the momentum that's so obviously here for legalizing marijuana will go away because companies will need to be regulatory or compliant with regulations and above the table and whereas other states they didn't have as significant of an industry to transition it was really the birth of an industry you're now taking something that a lot of it was in the kind of if and maybes category to legal and you know tax revenue bear, like generating for everyone in the state uh, we think that that has a large perception has a large impact on perception to mm. to not only California and the people around California but the rest of the country because those numbers will be will be exceptional and it, they already can't be ignored in the states that that it's recreational but that's the that's the game changing moment because then you're at a point where a third of Americans will live in a state that or within driving distance of a state that they can access recreational marijuana. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a there's a fact that I use a lot that I think California is the sixth largest economy in the world mm-hmm. if it was a country. So, yeah. um, tremendous, tremendously large. Um, you brought up regulation. California well, actually, going... one more oh, one, ahead, one more one more thing yeah. I think you should add in there is that the 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 coming online of California also means that you will have significant capital investment. I guess more like this is you know pertinent to your to this podcast. You'll have significant capital investment. We know people are putting in a lot of money into distribution companies, lab operations, all of these different things because whereas they could look at a state that had, you know, three, four, five million people in population, that's awesome and, and exciting. But it's not but it's not at scale and transformational. And we think the injection of that capital and also of the of those people, right? People that have built great liquor distribution companies are coming into the space in California because now is the time and the opportunity is so clear. Um, it's it's when it scales. And I think that's drastically magnified by the fact that it's hard to make a brand across state lines in yep. the cannabis industry, right? So they're saying, mm-hmm. okay, well, if we're going to put money in and California's on the table, that's much different than Nevada, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you brought up regulations. All those people that are putting money into labs and manufacturing facilities and distributors, uh, they are waiting with bated breath every time regulations come out in California. Mm-hmm. Uh, on November 16th, the emergency regulations were released um, without getting too detailed. Uh, What do they mean for LeafLink and and what part of those are you particularly interested in? The general theme of them is that businesses and states and regulators are getting way more collaborative on building these rules each time a state comes online, right? Like when, when Colorado and Washington pioneered this, they were feeling around in the dark and made mistakes and made it better. And, and a lot of the changes that they endured over the last three to five years can now be picked up with far less of an issue in a state like California. So what we've seen around you know, some of the particulars and regulations with the six-month transition period to allowing companies, really giving companies a chance to make the necessary adjustments to play by the rules and be respectful of the new regulations is... I think really important and, and significant that it's it's a recognition there's this is a real industry there are tens of thousands if not hundreds of thousands of people's livelihoods that depend on it and we cannot create legislation that just fractures and completely you know puts an industry in in lockjaw 
on January 1st, but we should be working really closely with the companies that they know will be large players that will be setting a new standard that will be bringing great people and great products and just great you know, ca- capital into the space that we'll give them that opportunity and that collaboration and that we're really, really positive about because it just seems to be getting better and better and more m- mature. And there'll be mistakes. There'll be things that can be even better than that. But we're super positive about overall the, the emergency regulations that, w- that were released. And it seems like there's just been a lot of working together that will serve everyone everyone well in the space uh, yeah i am too I, I thought they were largely fair um mm-hmm. obviously there's some companies that are going to lose out if you were making really really strong edibles or something like that yeah i mean you're going to have to adjust and there's winners and lures in in any market but i thought largely it was uh pretty uh pretty fair and thorough i thought they did a, a pretty good job actually and it seemed to have i agree it seemed to have an acknowledgement also that there are there are really two groups of companies, if we're talking specifically about California, there are those that have really enjoyed the operating in the current atmosphere that exists there. And they said to themselves, look, we're going to keep doing this for as long as we can. And then maybe we're not interested in, in becoming a licensed business. We will do it to the last minute and then, and then we'll find another opportunity maybe in somewhere else. And then there are the other companies that are going to invest the time and the, and the manpower and the capital to to follow and influence and be part of these rules and giving them the time to make that decision alongside running their businesses, I thought is, I think is great. You know, it's, it's what would be afforded other industries that, that really matter. And that we always think that the clients in our, the community in this space deserves exactly the same. Mm-hmm. So one of the trickier parts in the regulations is about distribution and transport. Um, how do customers of LeafLink handle that that problem? Yeah. Um, so right now, the way when orders are done through LeafLink, it's still on the brand and the retailer to coordinate that uh, the the currying the courier service or the logistics of the delivery. Uh, but what is happening in California is we're definitely seeing uh, a centralization around distributors. And we also, you know, of the 400 brands on LeafLink, we do have several dozen dis- distributors that are selling through the platform too. And so for us, it's really an important user group that we want to support. And we think we'll become more and more part of the industry. But it's another opportunity, right? Because if you think about the liquor industry, the three-tiered system, everyone has to have their take. What if that industry came and that whole structure came to life at a time when you could build in these technological processes that, mm-hmm. that they didn't have? It means that the end product could be cheaper down the line for, for the end consumer, greater efficiency, tighter or more, not, not tighter margins, but more earning potential at each element of the, of the handoff of the product as it goes through the supply chain. And so we see it as an important thing that certain states may not have it just because they're smaller and it makes sense for a sales team to coordinate it for each brand. But states like California, it makes a lot of sense. And we see ourselves going hand in hand with that structure. So to the, to the extent that, that, it's, that it's powerful for our clients, we want to, and the brands that we serve, we're really interested in supporting that user, that user base too. 
Yeah, I think this is a really important difference in your thesis versus others that I've spoken with is that from the beginning, you didn't try to take on this distribution transportation portion of it. Um, was that ever something you considered? And kind of how did that, uh, you know, how did that decision get made? It's a great point. There are companies we've met with that have met with others that say they're doing what we are doing. And the, and and so there's this idea that there might be some competitive or we're, we're trying to compete with them. The biggest issue, this goes back to the question we were talking about before with startups in this space, is every company, a lot of companies are trying to do everything and be everything to everyone. And the problem that happens then is you just you disperse all of your effort to be, all right, let's be a distributor and also a technology company. Oh, and also, why don't we have some branded products for us? We want to do one thing really, really well. It's run a standardized marketplace where buyers and sellers can meet each other and do deals. We are not trying to become a distribution company. We're, we're, we really want to stay. We're not trying to become a POS. We're not trying to become an ERP. Those are all really valuable things that we think require dedicated teams to absolutely crush and make those amazing for their clients. And then we want to work with them. So on the distribution side, there are people that know way, way more about moving product and coordinating logistics around, you know, a couple hundred delivery vehicles and warehousing and, and multi-warehousing logistics. Like all those things are, that's a whole other business. And we have enough of on our, on our plate right now that we want to work with a company that is the best at that. And the same thing goes for the company that's the best at other different product lines that we can tie into LeafLink and make part of the community to make it better for our clients. But we're not trying to be everything to everyone. We don't think that's how you win. Yeah, well said. And I think that speaks to the sort of immaturity of the cannabis industry to, to some extent. If yep. you know anything about building software, uh, you know that the more you build, generally, the more it sucks and the harder it is. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you, you have to be very focused, uh, particularly as, as a young company. And I'm often, as you said, uh, a little alarmed when I hear, oh, we're going to do uh, your delivery menu and your back end <laughs> system and your ERP. And we got all the RFID tags and the scanners. And it's like, OK, but does it work? You know, does yeah. any of this work? Yeah. Does it do any of the five the five companies that you just said you are well? And mm -hmm. usually the answer is no. And it, by the way, it's not, I don't think it's even something that's just specific to technology companies. We've met with some great product companies and they've said to us, oh, we're actually, my friend does websites. We're building an ERP. And we think, all right, well, why don't we catch up in three months? Because that is a an, an incredibly long endeavor. And why not just make the, if you're making THC infused products, let's say, or you're, you're a cultivator, be the best at that. And then we can all work together to make the end result supreme. But otherwise, it's just, it's a lot of nothing. It's a lot of noise. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. Agreed. Um, okay. So January 1st hits. What's the playbook in California? You know, what are the first 10 things you got to get done? So the number one is abiding by and following the compliance that's set and we believe and we want to serve companies that are following that framework so on leaflink in every state where there is a unified licensing structure we make sure that companies have a license in good standing so that when you join leaflink when you transact on leaflink when you meet other companies on leaflink you know that they are spending just as much time and effort to stay in line as you are. And that's really important for us to, to make sure we're verifying licenses. So California, 
will have that you know, next year. And so the first thing we're going to be doing is making sure that all of the companies on LeafLink are compliant, are, um, are respecting the regulations that have been put in place so that when those two buckets we talked about earlier, the companies that are trying to make what they can while they can, and then others that are in it for the longer term with mm-hmm. getting their, the new licenses, we want LeafLink to be all about the second group and the second group we know will want to find more of the same, more people like them. And so that element of exclusivity is really, really important and something that we want and will require a lot of work for us to maintain. So building that curated, such a tacky startup word, but really like <laughs> a, 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 a vetted community of companies that are taking the space to where it needs to be, uh, that, that's who we want to support. That's what the Leafland community will be all about. Got it. Yeah. And and how do you do that from a brand level? I mean, you said that retailers are, are free to the platform. I'm sure you'd love to have as many retailers as, as possible. Sure. How do you how do you vet the brands? I mean, what's a good brand? So the way we vet the brands is each state in one form or another has a data set that they make publicly available, at least the states that have this structure. So states like Colorado, Washington, Oregon. And what we do is you can't just create a LeafLink account. You need to submit an application with that information, your address, content information that we verify to make sure you should be a member of the community, you're licensed mm-hmm. to be a member of the community. And so that's the that's the main way that we check and the effort that we put into it. And and then great brands for us are we have a lot of tools internally where people can find we can we can people in the community can share what they want to buy, brands that they love. And we do there's a lot of manual work that goes into it. There's we're getting better and better at understanding what our client, what our clients on the buy side want to purchase, and so those are the ones that we typically target. There's a, there's an element of subjectivity to it, but the most objective piece is licenses that they have and that are in good standing. Yeah. Wow. Um, I want to take a just take a step back a little bit and talk about your background a little bit. You're so. Sure compelling. And I don't say that just to stroke your ego, uh, but it's obvious from the money that you've raised in, in a short amount of time. And interestingly enough, uh, one of the few founders in cannabis that's not a first-time founder. And I think mm-hmm. that's that's particularly compelling. Without going into too much detail, I think it was in the real estate space that you had an exit before. What did you learn from that exit and how have you applied that here? How, how crucial has that been? Sure. So before before LeafLink, I started an investor relationship manager for real estate funds. It's basically a way for general partners to manage limited partners. And it was started as a senior in college and then it was acquired by a public company in 2014. Learned a lot, uh, a lot actually around culture and the type of teams to build, the kind of people that really are part of making that there's definitely an element of of luck and timing on on every business but people that are willing to put that time in and what it means and how important the first few hires are probably like those are some of the most important things i learned because finding the right people is such a huge part of our job as a founder to 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 bring these people into the space and 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 that was one of the main things i learned was was how to i'm still learning this but i've gotten much better at, at finding the right people and it's like it's just a learning forever type thing but progressively more experienced and people that we can learn from too there's a great quote that says you should be if you've built a great company probably the dumbest person in the conference room 
and mm. and that's something that we are very aware of and we think it's really important to do because we're not really we're not just bringing them for us we're bringing them for our clients that that need that kind of guidance and that and an and understanding to for their businesses to grow too. Uh, kind of a, a personal question, I guess. Did you just because you're you're so young, you're also thirty under thirty in two thousand sixteen, uh, Forbes thirty under thirty, which is which is rad. I just had a couple friends that were on the most recent list. That's all anybody wants to ask them about, which is interestingly enough. Like, what about the work that I did to get into the Forbes thirty under thirty? Yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> but so cool. anyway, um, did you expect to have this much success uh, so quickly? I don't feel like I'm successful. I guess that's the, I, I you know, I, I feel like we're just, we are just getting started. And we always say at Leafling, right, we haven't even finished the first paragraph of the novel of what we're creating right now. It's, I, I don't, I, it's funny because people like start asking me that question. Like, like, I, like I, I don't think of myself that way. I don't think I ever will. And there's so much more to do. And that's, I mean, I appreciate the compliments of everything you just said, but really, I'm very, well, I think you I'm just very summed up with what I've done so far. We oh. have so much more we have to accomplish. You know? Well, I think you just summed up why you have been successful up into this far because you're incredibly <laughs> driven and you don't you don't feel like you've achieved anything. Which which I agree. There's a huge, uh, big untapped market here um, that you have left to conquer. Um, cool. Well, this was an awesome interview. Thank you so much uh, for being on the show. Um, what Thanks can we do? Us. What can we do for you? Are you hiring anybody? What what kind of positions do you have open at the moment? We are. Uh, so. So as you, we just discussed, we closed the new round. So we are aggressively hiring in the, on our sales team, on our engineering team, and also actually on every team, on marketing and client success as well. And as I mentioned before, we have uh, offices in, in, in LA, in New York, in Denver. And then we have team members on the ground that work remote in Washington, Oregon, Arizona, um, and that will only continue to grow with all the new states that are coming online. So if you're, if you're part of the, the, the cannabis community, any of those new states, please reach out to us. We love bringing people back to that mix of people with great technological experience, great cannabis experience. Please send your resumes to jobs at leaflink.com. We'd love to check them out and, and potentially connect. And uh, for brands and for brands that are growing really quickly, we are live, as I mentioned, in six states. And so um, if you're doing a great job in, in Washington or Oregon or, or Colorado or even California, and you're thinking of opening up in Arizona, Nevada, or any of the states that I just mentioned, reach out to us because you could tap into immediately this community of 1,700 purchasing managers and retail buyers overnight which is really powerful as we know companies are scaling and going for multi-state presences. And yeah, those are the two groups that you reach out to us and we're always like willing to talk, happy to educate people that are not in the industry on the industry and help people that we serve every day in the industry get to the next level in their business too. Awesome. So last question, I'll get you out of here. Uh, we just saw the first billion dollar cannabis company in Canada with, with Canopy. Um, mm-hmm. And that has me as an American feeling a little left out to be honest, uh-huh. uh, feeling like I should move to Toronto in a hurry. Um, <laughs> but how big can LeafLink be? Can this be a billion dollar company? The whole obsession with like unicorn and all those things that like, you know, traffic focused websites talk about, like even when, even when companies raise money, everyone gets so excited about it. But we think at the end of the day, who cares, right? It's more important that you, 
use the money in a way to grow the business. And also like valuation, all those things are all numbers on paper. This, we do believe that we're in, like we said, a unique position to set a new standard and define how the cannabis industry and supply chain operates in this space. Uh, I do, I agree that like that, that deal that was done up in Canada was, was definitely the most important capital investment and investing news period for the, for the cannabis industry. And we know that there are other deals of similar, similar nature that are cooking right now that, that, that really, the, yeah, they will happen in Canada, but Canada is a, is a great market. It's a progressive market. But in, if you read the press release from the CEO of Constellation, he effectively said that it's a staging ground for the inevitable legalization in the United States. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think there's any reason to jump the border yet. It's all coming here and, and they'll be doing their piloting up there. And when it does happen here, this will be the place to be. And that's what we're preparing for at Flank. Awesome. Well, I think that's as good a place to wrap up as any. Ryan, thank you so much. It's been a wonderful interview. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me, Brandon, and uh, talk to you soon. Yeah, thanks for listening, guys. See you next time.